0: I'm Jeff Gedman with American Purpose. Today we are in Ukraine. Giselle, a, a dear friend of many, friend of mine, and you're a prolific writer on a range of issues, and you've been focused and dedicated to Ukraine in a very important way the last four months. Giselle, you have the floor. It's your show. Giselle, you have the floor.
1: Good. I, I will try to be uh, as uh, quick as possible uh, so we can uh, share the hour as much as possible. Um, and just to sort of kick off the conversation, Dalibor and Yulia, when we did our podcasts a couple days ago, um, you were both just back from Bucha and Airpen, uh, which was a very powerful reminder that in addition to the strategic and geopolitical questions and the economic questions that, that confront us today, there is a just a really powerful moral dimension to this um, occasion. And I guess my first question is, uh, uh, have you recovered from the experience? I, mean, I was really struck by the uh, uh, stunned looks on your faces. But um, if we could pick it up, from there, uh, feel free to take the conversation farther than that to encompass what you have learned in the last couple of days. But uh, that does seem like the right place to start to me.
2: So Giselle, when you say a couple of days ago, you truly meant yesterday. We went to Butcher <laughs> yesterday it's afternoon for reminding we, me. <laughs> we called it the podcast and it is true that it is a fair bit to process and I think one of the. I suppose defining tensions that, that struck us as interesting or at least struck me as interesting on this trip is this tension between the relative calm and in fact vibrancy of the city the young people on skateboards and electric scooters and restaurants that are open and and, and cafes etc and the sense of normalcy and the fact that 20 minutes away you have uh really these like sites of unspeakable horror that that occurred there just a few just a few weeks ago so so, so just sort of like reconciling these two realities is not uh, an exactly easy task yet it's something that ukrainians are living with i suppose on a, on a, on a daily basis there is a sense of resilience and, and the fact life must go on um there is a sense of 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 determination, Uh, one of the sort of recurrent themes in our conversation has been that that, that Ukraine is in this fight until victory, no matter what, regardless of whether the West comes to its help or not, uh, that they really don't want to live as slaves in some, you know, new Russian empire. This is my second time in Ukraine. I was here only once before, a couple of weeks after the Maidan in March 2014, and and I have to say that the the sort of magnitude of change is is, is, is truly monumental. I mean, you, Ukraine is a relatively poor European country and and and, and suffers from a range of problems. Uh, but I mean, the sort of embrace of the West and uh, not, not not just in terms of values, but in terms of lifestyles and and, and sort of aesthetics. And how people dress, and 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 uh, you know how well they speak English, etc. I, I think uh, th- there has been a dramatic shift in the post 2014 period. I mean, the city which struck me as, as sort of grey and 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 depressing seven years ago really feels much more like like Warsaw, in spite of the war situation. And I think, I mean, Ukrainians have chosen their path. And it is you know, up to us to make a decision whether we really are determined to help set the country up for success, which would have important reverberations in the region and indeed globally for for the transatlantic alliance and for the future of liberal democracy.
3: So I think one of the things that um, I'd like to piggy bank back on th- thinking about yesterday and how it feels to be here. We're just looking across the Dnipro River and we can see the beach with people hanging out and it feels a bit like like Israel. We just went back from a bomb the bomb shelter because there was another um another air raid siren. So you if you've been to Israel, it feels a little bit like that, um, with a lot of resilience. The other thing I guess when you, when we went to Irpin and, and Bucha, was um, that it becomes clear. You, we have all seen the, the images thousands of times on CNN and BBC, etc. Um, but when you're there and you have this kind of 30, 360 degrees perspective, um, you really realize that this is a microcosm of. Um, the absolute destruction um, that that Russia is trying to kind of impose on Ukraine. And you feel a bit, um, I guess, humbled or overwhelmed by the fact that you can only imagine how things look like in Mariupol or other places at a much, much larger scale with a much larger scale of destruction as well. But one of the things, as we've talked to, I think now about 30 people in, in just a few days, um, we kept asking, of course, some of the same questions in terms of how do you define victory and how, of course, you define defeat, because we need to understand these things, too, to be able to um, push for um, for Ukraine and, and their interests. and what has been striking to me is that even here you can see that this is a very democratic society and that there is no clarity in terms of what victory looks like. People are still trying to define it. Is it February 24th lines? Is it all the way back um, to uh, illegally recognized territory? And if that's the case, the latter, then how is that conceivable? It's striking that civilians um, that have nothing to do with security and defense have learned about different ranges and different artillery pieces. Um, And so, they're trying to inform or make their arguments um, with technical details to be able to make us understand better what we need. And one of our last conversations today, a uh, government official, um, we were pushing him on how many pieces do you need of um uh in this case, MLRSs. Um, in in this case, um he made the observation that according to process and effectiveness in the theater of operations, we've given them now four, or the United States has given them now four, but the, um, the length of the, um, of the line of combat is a thousand kilometers, and according to process, you need one every kilometer, so a thousand we're now at four. Um, And so these are some of the takeaways in terms of how they're looking at the possibilities of um, stopping this conflict. It really goes back to the fact that they don't see uh, even people involved directly in negotiations with the Russians, don't see any willingness um, for any um, discussion or negotiations on the Russian side, So they tell us it's really just about the military, because that's the only way that we can achieve at this point, even from the Russian side, um, some kind of stalemate or peace. Um, And then... And then it also, through the conversations, and I guess important for us in the DC and larger community, has been the fact that, of course, for them and for the region, as um, Dalibor and I traveling through the region before getting here, um, have observed its existential for the United States, its peripheral, and one can tell from the different policies, But, um, two things, and, and I'll wrap this, um, wrap it up with, with these two things. Two, two things are the important takeaways that we've heard from my perspective from Ukrainians. The one thing is that, um, it is about values. They talked, we asked them about, the morale and how that varies because, of course, it's not linear, what the risks are as we're looking into the battlefield in the next few months. And it became clear from non-governmental um, representatives to governmental representatives that Ukrainians are not just fighting because it is existential and they realize that otherwise they cannot survive But what keeps them in the fight is the fight for values that they want, essentially just freedom. Um, So that was one important takeaway for me, because I need to hear it from them to understand what they're fighting for and how we can support them, including in morale, which is so essential in this war. And the other thing is the United States. Um, And this reminds me of um something that was said to me by a top US, uh, by a top diplomat in in Romania, not US, someone else, but this is on record. So I don't know if I can quote him. Um, But he asked me, so is the United States listening to Germany and France? And through this war, and I said, mm, I don't know, I don't think so. Not too much from what we've seen. And he said, well, so when will Biden decide? because it's all in the White House's hands. Um, And the conversations that we had about the military and the artillery pieces and the multi-launch rocket systems, et cetera, they all go back to the United States. So I think that's an important takeaway. We all know it in this conversation, but it's important to hear it from them in terms of what this depends on and in their understanding it does depend, their victory does depend essentially on Western support.
1: Dan, I'm wondering if anything that, that struck you or that you'd like to add?
4: Yeah, uh, let me just make three three points picking up on, on the very good briefing. Um, first of all, on the values point, I, I also heard that again and again. And a, a couple of things that were striking to me is that uh, people said that it's not just that, you know, the civil society, first of all, that civil society has massively expanded. Um, Even people who consider themselves part of civil society has massively expanded across the society, which is not surprising because there has been a societal mobilization In response. And I think one of the things the West has to figure out how to do is how to support new civil society that, that, that is emerging in this moment, because it will be essential going forward. But one of the things that I heard time and time again was that it's not just, you know, human rights lawyers who are saying that this is about values. It's when you ask a factory worker, why are we fighting? It's about freedom. And so it's running throughout the society that there is a understanding of this as a, as, as a values anchored fight that they are having. and, you know, I was really struck by one lawyer's point to me that, you know, Putin is trying to gaslight us, she said, uh, into thinking that freedom and uh, human rights are artificial constructs of the West. And the way that we prove that it isn't is through rule of law and accountability and showing that they aren't artificial values, that this is these are not artificial constructs and it is not a world where power makes right. So that I think that understanding is really important. The second point is just on the assistance piece. You know, I was struck again, time and again. Uh, Ukraine Inform the the Ministry of Communications has this really flashy, smart PR. It's like a department store window at the front of the ministry that has pictures of all of the weapon systems and the flags of the countries that have donated them to Ukraine. It's really impressive. They've it 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 is gratitude on full display, and people are grateful for the assistance that, that has been received. And yet they say, you know, they say, and it is objectively not enough to win. And so there's this strange moral gap where they're trying to express gratitude and say, like, we're really grateful for all the help. And yet it's inadequate. And 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 they found I kept having people apologizing to me for saying so because they don't want to seem ungrateful. But the, but the fact is, as much as we've given, and the fact that we've given more. And faster than ever before, which is true. It has been unprecedented. It is still not enough. And I, I found myself sitting in that gap a lot. And then finally, on the military way forward, obviously, people have been reading about the kind of uh, Russian kind of incremental gains in the last few weeks, I assume, of east. And, Everybody I talked to both in Ukraine and importantly in Poland because I was in Warsaw as well um, said that their assessment is basically that Putin is now throwing the kitchen sink at it um, that that the Russians are kind of at full throttle in their in their attacks and that that probably won't be sustainable for the Russians without a full mobilization on their side uh, and so he's trying to get everything he can get in the next couple months which is why the the assistance to Ukraine right now is so crucial in in being able to to hold uh, the line as much as possible. I think what's important for us to think about is what happens if, if that, if that assessment is correct. Um, And by the way, the Ukrainians have made some really good strategic choices against the recommendations of people like the Poles, for instance, leaving their most well-trained forces out East, even as Kiev was under attack so that they were prepared for the Russian regrouping when it happened. Um, But I think one of the things we have to ask ourselves is what will, what will the rest, what will the West's, recommendation be if Putin is forced to take a pause of sorts late summer, because obviously that will be the moment when the Russians might be interested in a ceasefire, having made some gains, and it will be the hardest moment for the Ukrainians to accept that. Uh, and I think it's important that we think through what we think, you know, the steps that follow from that might be. Um, but in the meantime, I came back more convinced than ever that we should be advocating for additional assistance and as quickly as possible, both on the military and the economic front.
1: I'd like to ask one brief follow-up. Um, all the three of you like to pick up on uh, sort of a combination of the last point that Dan made and, and the point that you, Dalibor, and Yulia have made before. And that is because the Ukrainians have been so stalwart thus far, Sometimes I even find myself sort of taking that fact for granted. Um, But apropos of this uh, looming moment, maybe at the end of the summer or in the fall, where the Russians have shot their last bullet again, (laughs) finally put a lock on and ask who knows. But whether there won't come a time when not just uh, Western Europeans and some Americans, but some Ukrainians think that this is, we we just, this has been all we can take for now. I know this is a speculative question, but since you've talked to so many people recently, be interested in your reflections on that.
3: I'll give it a try and then I'll pass over to Dalibor and maybe we can hear from Dan as well. Um, That's kind of a duality too. So I mentioned um, at, at at the end earlier when I was speaking, that um, it really is in the hands of the United States, not just in terms of what can be delivered now, but in terms of how can this be sustained. That is my my own assessment because I've heard different positions here. um, And again, everybody's free to think um, here, whatever they like, there's no unitary position. But this is my understanding that I've had now for a while that this is a long conflict, Um, just like it has been at different intensities over the last eight years. And so it is only in the hands of the United States, not just in terms of delivery, because delivery depends now also on European countries. After Rammstein three that we've just seen, um, it is, um, it also depends on each one of the member states of NATO and how, what they have in storage and, and how they can help. But it's also a matter of upping production, um, because this is a huge front. This is the biggest thing that we've seen in Europe since World War II, and if this lasts, then it's a matter, I know we've started in the United States, and I'm hoping in some European countries, to increase production of ammunition as well as capabilities themselves, Um, but it's only the United States that has the capacity not just to unite allies around this and keep them focused in their commitments but also to sustain um, uh, Ukraine in the end, um, Ukrainian resistance um, in the medium and long run. Now, this is the strategic side of it. The other side of it, and that's something that Dalibor was alluding to um, or, or actually mentioned a bit earlier, is that for Ukrainians, this is, and I perfectly understand that, so existential. And you see that when you go to Irpin and to Bucha and Kostomelen um Borodyanka and all these places and I'm guessing if we ever make it to Mariupol or Kharkiv soon maybe um, then um, then you realize that this is existential in the sense that Russia is out to destroy Ukraine with everything it has, critical infrastructure and of course people, national identity. So they have no choice but to fight. They can either, um, someone said this a couple of days ago, you can die uh, tortured or you can die fighting. Um, and so if you have this choice, there will be, this is a, a pool of 40 plus million people there will be enough people to fight. Um, They had at the beginning of the war, um, 250,000. Now they have 750,000, and there's millions more that are queuing up um, to to enlist in territorial defense or or in the armed forces as well. Um, And so they have no choice, but if we stop the support or decrease the flow, um, the tragedy that we're seeing now with we don't know exactly because this is war, um, hundreds of probably of, of military dead every day. This tragedy will um, increase in in, um, in everything. Um, we'll see more of that. And so they might lose more territory, everything um, east of the Dnipro River seems to be what Russia is aiming for. For now, um, they we've heard conversations here again and again about a second battle of Kiev and, and the the fear of that too, as um, there are troops amassed and ready to roll out of Belarus, just seventy kilometers north of here, and so um, they will fight, but without the supports, um, it's very hard for them and frankly for me to imagine. Um, how this will look like in terms of um, defeat in the end because victory without western support is just not possible
2: i can just add to that um really nobody we spoke to um on this trip was under any illusions about uh the path to victory being easy or or short and i think dan made the the right and important point there that Really, Russians seem to be throwing the kitchen sink at the problem, and putting, you know, all the artillery and tanks, no matter how 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 old, uh, on 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 full display. And and because they have a lot of equipment, you know, however old or obsolete might be, I mean, that is a major headache for for the Ukrainians. And and I'm no military expert myself, but thinking through the sort of relative strength of the two armies, thinking through uh, the current supplies that are being sent to Ukraine. I mean, I would venture to guess that if we sort of freeze all the conditions in place and all the parameters, and we don't send them significantly more stuff, I mean, the most likely sort of median outcome of this is is is, is, is that it freezes in place, that, that, that Russians won't be able to advance very much. But ukrainians won't be able to push them back very much and that's a that's a deeply unsatisfying uh sort of non-resolution to the to the conflict the ukrainians are determined to fight and 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 and, and to push back and it's not so much a question of whether they will remain united i think that decision has, has been made but i think we have to be mindful of the fact that that war especially prolonged and extended war is not necessarily healthy to the body politic and to the future of ukraine as a as a liberal democracy already. In some of these conversations we've been having, can you can sort of see the, the sort of darker side of unity, namely people who say, well, you know, I know that there have been wrong decisions made here and there, and there are deficiencies in this or that area, but I can't really voice my opinions publicly uh, because A, I don't want to undermine the government, we have to be united, and B, it also signals to Russians where our vulnerabilities lie. I mean, and and so if we don't want the situation to go on and on and on for years, because it will just contribute to to you know Ukraine being a you know weaker and and, and less well governed country, and and ultimately the decision is ours to make. I mean, I, I, I think with Western style equipment, with a really significant increase in military aid for Ukraine and training, and 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 and, and, and you know throwing the kitchen sink at the problem ourselves there is a good chance that that the Ukrainians would be able to push the Russians outside at least of the February 24 borders. And I think that would be a really helpful start because that would signal that, that this whole adventure that President Putin started has failed. And, and I think that's the outcome we should be striving for and we shouldn't settle for anything less.
4: Yeah, I just I, I think there's this there's also this problem of um and this goes to the reconstruction. You know, I think I think it, generally we think of reconstruction as being the thing that comes after the war and not knowing when the war is going to end um, and knowing that much has been destroyed. Reconstruction needs to start sooner than that. I think there's a reasonable concern that when reconstruction starts, Putin will continue to use. You know, uh, the minute the new airport is inaugurated, the there will be a volley of Russian missiles that will destroy it, and so this this creates a genuine puzzle about how you move forward. But you have to move forward in part to give people hope uh, and show them that there will be a future there. And and so I I I think there's a real challenge if 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 you don't get to a point where frankly where where it's Putin who is dealing with the fact that there is a constant you you know you can imagine a future where there's a general cessation of hostilities and there's an ongoing kind of irregular resistance that is going on in the parts that russia still controls if russia still controls part of ukraine's territory and that that becomes a thorn in putin's side but how you how you make sure that that you can move on for the rest of the country that is a real puzzle Um, and i think one that we have to think about also as we consider as we contemplate kind of what kinds of Uh, medium-term resolutions might be satisfactory.
3: One very quick thing apropos reconstruction that stuck to my mind is we had earlier a conversation with a university rector here that said that he wouldn't do this um, if it wouldn't be for the war, um, such an ambitious plan, but he was, um, he's launching four new master programs um, here in Kiev and one of them in this fall and one of them is for urban planning um, because he says, I cannot wait two or three years um, to teach people about reconstruction. We need to learn it now um, because there's urgency to that. I thought that was very impressive and very telling of um, Ukraine. Ukrainian determination, and apropos what Dalibor was saying earlier, how much the country has changed in eight years, um, you can see uh, not just resistance, but really determination to transform it um, if there is a chance um, for that and to use reconstruction um to um, make Ukraine into something that is at the level of Poland or even further, i don't think we are just like we are we were surprised in the first month of by Ukrainian resistance. I do walk away from here with the conviction that we can barely imagine what they're capable of, particularly civil society, if they just have a chance. So that's also, I think, important to to mention.
1: Our first question is actually from a uh, an email a participant. Uh, uh, it's a question for everybody, actually. Um, d- do you still think the, that Russia can be permanently weakened after this war? And what could that mean? Uh, Russia will be weakened anyway, as far as arms and forces are concerned, depending on the result, but also uh, morale. But if Russia should lose this war, wouldn't the best be outcome be if Russia, which is actually a colonial empire, uh, would disintegrate into uh, constituting parts and how realistic is such um, an outcome? That That is a subject, there have been a number of pieces uh, circulating recently about uh, the history of Russian imperialism and colonialism, uh, you know, sort of along with the uh, Kissingerian fear that uh, Russia will disintegrate. This is always a sort of realist trope that uh, applies also to China as well. But um since you people on the front line uh have been able to uh gauge So I'm I might be um, on the front lines, but and, I haven't uh, really
2: surrendered my sort of ideological and sort of intellectual <laughs> commitments. So <laughs> so I would say that uh empire versus disintegration might be a false binary. And to see why it's a false binary, I think it's enough to look at the example of the post-war reconstruction and political reorganization of germany where i think the operative word has been federalism and a sort of either political decentralization that made it impossible for any german government to you know repeat the same mistakes that 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 that, that, that the world had seen in in earlier decades of the 20th century and and i, I mean i do agree that this is a real chance to weaken and Set back Russian imperialism for decades, and, and 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 that's an opportunity we really should seize. And and in that sense, that would be that. would we help. So we don't have full control over what happens in Russia as a result of that. Uh, but if this ends up with anything that could be sold by by Putin's regime and the Russian political elite as a, as a, as a victory or anything resembling a victory, I think the opportunity for for a more benign Russia uh just will become far more distant and 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 therefore now is the time to push and i'm you know i'm agnostic about how russia should be organized politically but i think there are you know benign alternatives to some sort of chaotic disintegration as as, as the history teaches us
1: you said very plainly that we don't just have a putin problem we have a russia problem that the brutality um and the imperial impulse, if you will, the impulse to greatness is especially as evidenced in the Bucha and Irpin and elsewhere, something that runs very deep in Russian culture and society. Would you, Yulia, wanted you? Uh...
3: Yeah, um, I'm, I have to remember a couple of months ago already, must have been one month into the war, I was um, on this panel back at Georgetown with um, two of my um, colleagues, professors from the United States, both experts in Russia, and we were asked the same question, is this a Putin or a Russia problem? And I was struck to see that they both completely said, you know, this is a Russia problem. Um, I, too, think it's a Russia problem. Um, and I think it's worth starting to have conversations about um, how a post whatever a transition of Russia could look like and how that can be enabled. But I think that's a conversation in itself. Um, but, but I do think that with historical examples of um, wars, Germany and Japan, um, minus the issue of nuclear weapons, it is a matter of Russia have or Russians um, that I do believe the majority of them um, truly believe um, in this and are supportive of this war um, and not just this war um, but but more than that. And so we can't really intervene in whatever we want to call it, re education. I don't think we have the willingness or the capacity, and there is the issue of um of nuclear weapons, and that's um that's a big problem in the long run. Um, that's also worth um get, you know, putting a lot of minds to it and what the possibilities of that are but um but to quote um jeff who's um somewhere around here um he was saying earlier yes we need a russia strategy um but i think the russia strategy begins in ukraine um this is uh an opportunity for us to weaken russia as dalibor was saying to to set um imperialism back for a generation but i am very skeptical of the chances of success of that. um, Because I, even though I'm not a scholar of history, um, I am from the region. And so just like Ukrainians or Poles or um, Slovaks, um, we've been having a Russia problem for about at least 300 years um, in in one form or another. Um, Eastern Europe that is in population larger than, um, than than Russia has had a problem uh, with Russia and with Russians and their imperialism for a long time in one way or another i I am not experienced enough and not enough of a Russia scholar to be able to project um, how this problem can be solved, but I think we need to at least start thinking seriously about this in in a matter of if Putin is removed from power or dies of old age in next month or in 10 years, uh, I think a lot of problems will persist. Um, and, uh, and I think we need a lot of bright minds to figure out um, how to deal with this problem in the long run. If I can just
2: add one, one additional thought to that, just Sort of building on my, again, personal biases as a as, as an economist, uh, namely that one of the driving factors uh, of you know the, the sort of governance we see in Russia is the fact that it has an economy which is built overwhelmingly around the extraction of natural resources and resource rents, and and that economy I mean that, that economy is just naturally conducive to a form of governance that's you know authoritarian kleptocratic. You know hyper centralized anybody who would like time travel to see Russia in 2022 from I don't know like early 20th century, like would, would, would like immediately recognize you know Russia as you know this sort of you know misgoverned centralized system that is sort of imperialist I mean, because of I it mean, structurally like Russia hasn't really changed as much as, as Western economies have. And uh, and so I'll make actually I'll, I'll make a case. Based on this, for you know a, 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 a rapid greening of our economies, I think the the, la, the the faster we can wean off ourselves, not just of Russian natural gas and oil, but of just oil and gas more generally, and drive the prices of those things down, I think the harder it will be to sustain this, the the current sort of kleptocratic, autocratic sort of model of governance in in Russia. I mean, you know, good good luck sustaining that military. If you, if if your oil and gas is worthless, and uh, obviously there, are, you know, there is a separate debate to be had about how the green transition could be achieved in the West. Uh, but I mean, it is important that we do get there eventually, because as long as there is a market for Russian oil and gas, uh, there is revenue that, that 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 Vladimir Putin will use and put to I mean bad uses,
1: and that. A somewhat lugubrious note. I think we're uh, reaching the time limit here. Um, I want to thank uh, Jeff for the opportunity to host this uh, this great discussion. And uh, Jeff, please bring my Eastern Front colleagues home safely. Uh, uh, so, uh, G- Giselle, we
0: we will. And and I want to say a word of thanks to all of you. And. To you Giselle for leading the conversation to Dan and Dalibor and Yulia and if I may make a brief advertisement there are many ways to support the important cause political and strategic and moral of Ukraine. I want to mention that we have uh, the small role of being a partner for a concert this coming Sunday in Washington DC at Washington National Cathedral. It's the Washington City Choir, full choir and orchestra, a performance of Brahms and Elgar. And the program is dedicated to the people of Ukraine and the victims of war. Look at the website, Washington City Choir. Please attend if you're in Washington, or please share and promote in social media. But you all, thank you very much and uh, appreciate your comments and questions. And be safe. More soon. Thanks, everybody.